If you would, um, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, and we'll be starting at verse 1. I think we're pre- all pretty well familiar with this, so um, we'll, uh, we'll just jump right into the text. Um, Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He, his chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till your people till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. We're going to stop there. Um, This is that... Song of Moses that uh, Jason mentioned briefly last week um, that is that is talked about in the book of Revelation, and it it seemed fitting uh, because we just celebrated the start of a new year a couple weeks ago, and as one of those uh, common sta- staples of a new year celebration, 
we have songs, and particularly in places like uh, Times Square, there's an old song that gets sung a lot. It's called Auld Lang Syne. You might not recognize the title of it, but you would probably recognize the tune if you heard it. It's, it's that song that is sung at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, if you've seen that movie. Um, they, the, all the people are gathered together in the Bailey house and they're singing this song together. Um, and Auld Lang Syne is this old Scottish tune about two friends. They're remembering their times of adventuring together uh, over drinks. And as much as I enjoy the tune of that song and don't mind the idea of remembering good times past and looking forward to a good new year, there's nothing can, that can compare to the message of promise found in the song that Moses composed and sang with the newly formed nation of Israel. The song is composed during a time of newness for Israel. God had given them a new calendar to follow. They're freed from captivity. They're saved through the victory of Yahweh over the Egyptians. They are created into a new nation, and they're hopeful in their new relationship with their God. And they're confident for the future conquest of the promised land. We don't see miracles the way that Moses saw them. God has planned times and purposes for performing those types of miracles, such as the Red Sea crossing, but he commissioned men like Moses to record them in his word. And through the record of prophets like Moses, having faith that God is able to accomplish these things and knowing that there are still promises and prophecies to be fulfilled, these can give us confidence to live dedicated to the same God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Moses demonstrated a response that was appropriate to Yahweh's display of power and salvation, praise through theologically powerful and thoughtfully written song. And in this particular song, we find that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sovereign over nations, he controls all of creation, and he is a warrior against evil and the protector of his people. In this song is obviously a, a song that they are telling as they've just witnessed the Red Sea crossing, and that's what they are recounting in it. And verses 1 through 5 begin that song with a sort of introduction. As I said, Israel has just been formed into a new, t- new nation. Previously, they were a family, and they grew into a people group. And then they became a threat in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they were enslaved. And now on the wilderness side of the Red Sea, they have a new identity as the people of the Lord. They've been given Moses as their representative from God. They've been given a new calendar and feast days. Yahweh has even provided a treasury for them by looting the Egyptians. They just witnessed the power of their God in the plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians, the Passover, the pillar of fire by night, the the pillar of cloud by day. And now... In the Red Sea crossing, this new song, it focuses on the scene that they just witnessed 
of the walls of water, the dry bed of the sea, and the crushing of Pharaoh. They sing by the sea with the bodies of the Egyptians and their horses and pieces of chariot washing up on the shore. In the first set of verses, it gives the audience of the song. We're told that this new nation of Israel is singing to the Lord. It is the first line of the song. I will sing to the Lord. Verse 2 focuses on the personal and the possessive nature of a newfound relationship that Israel has with their God. It says, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. In claiming the Lord as the God of Israel, Moses points out some of the attributes of God. One commentator makes the argument that the line which says, the Lord is my strength and song, it would be better translated, the Lord is my strength and deliverer. This would couple better with the next verse, which says, and he has become my salvation. And taken together, these lines indicate how Israel sees him at this moment. They've been delivered from their servitude and protected from their oppressors. Yahweh is the embodiment of their salvation. He gave them freedom and safety from a man that ordered their children to be drowned so that their population would be controlled like cattle. Yahweh removed them from harm's way and removed the threat of death or going back to servitude by destroying Egypt's king and army. And Moses also makes a connection to, of Yahweh to generations past. He is my God and my father's God. He claims lineage to Israel's ancestors who knew Yahweh and is referencing back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 when he spoke, God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. He told Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And having placed this general a generational reference in the song, Moses showed that he recognized God's original covenant with Abraham, and he sees now this newly formed nation as a fulfillment of his promise to make a nation out of Abraham. Back in Genesis 22 is where we, found, where we find that promise, one of its iterations. Uh, Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In just two verses of this song, Yahweh, God of, the God of Israel, is a defender, a savior, and deliverer. He's a promise-keeping God over multiple generations, and he is also a warrior as it continues on. In verse 3, it says, The Lord is a man of war. Not only is the Lord a man of war, but we find out later in Joshua that he is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of armies. Yahweh has given his, he has his own army of angelic beings, but 
he is also sovereign over nations and their armies, meaning that he, his control extends to, the, to every military force, whether they fight for him or against him. He is a god of war. This song vividly depicts the battle of Yahweh versus Pharaoh's army. It is, it's littered with subtle images that we don't necessarily get in English. So, like in verse 1, it says, He triumphed gloriously. The word triumphed also means to rise up. So it's like a word play on the rising waters of the sea while he rises to victory. In verse 5, the Hebrew word for depths, it sounds like gurgling when it's pronounced correctly. So you can get this depiction of the drowning Egyptian army as you sing the song. The outcome of the battle was a decisive victory for Yahweh. Verse 1 says, The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. In verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. There is no match against the power of God. Pharaoh came bearing down on Israel with the pinnacle of war technology, but God is poetically depicted as simply throwing horses and chariots aside like trash. As we come to verse 5, it contains the end of the first stanza with, with words of finality for the Egyptian army. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. This verse pairs with the end of the next stanza, which ends in verse 10. It says, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You can compare those two verses together and see the, the, the ends of the stanzas there. And then we move to the next, that next stanza. The whole, this whole stanza itself is depicting the heated tone of the battle. And of course, this battle was over before it began, but in describing the battle, Moses used uh, something called anthropomorphisms, which is just using human attributes to give us imagination of, about what Yahweh is doing. It gives us a way to comprehend the actions of God and visualize him. So verse, verse 6, it gives him a strong right hand to describe him dashing the enemy to pieces, similar to uh, the language of, of Psalm 2.9. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The strong east wind that God sent to part the waters in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 21, those are attributed to God breathing through his nostrils on the sea to push the waters back and dry the bed underneath. With the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Exodus 14, it described the waters as walls on either side of Israel as they passed through the middle on dry ground. And Moses poetically describes the water as being congealed and heaped up as if it's solid. It's just solid walls on either side and dry ground underneath. The wrath of God in this stanza, it comes through as metaphorical fire. 
The Egyptian army has been consumed like stubble, he says. It's like that stubble that Israel was forced to collect to make their bricks when they were back in in slavery, making bricks for Pharaoh's cities. You can almost hear the little bit of pleasure that Moses gets out of putting a line like that in there. There's no more slavery for God's people. In verse 9, Pharaoh, the enemy of Yahweh and of Israel, is depicted in his own insignificant wrath. His sole purpose was to remove the people from the face of the earth for his own desire, for his pride. The Exodus itself, the events of Israel leaving the land of Egypt, began with the anti-Semitic actions of Pharaoh to kill the male children of Israel and continued until his end as he led a conquest against Yahweh and the children of Israel. Pharaoh saw this as his opportunity to overtake and annihilate this newborn nation. But just like every other attempt by genocidal maniacs throughout Israel's history to remove them, God ensured Pharaoh's demise. In his own arrogance and blind rage, Pharaoh led his army into the sea to their watery mass grave as God removed the wheels of their chariots, stopping them at the bottom of the sea and crushing them under the waves. Which leads us to the next stanza of victory in verses 11 through 13. With the action of the battle settled, Moses shifts the tone of the song slightly by asking rhetorical questions about the nature of God. The first question asking, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's asking which of those Egyptian gods would compare to the God of Israel. Those gods of Egypt were proven by Yahweh to be powerless in the plagues that he brought on Egypt. Each one was supposedly in control of the elements that God used in the plagues. For example, the Egyptian god Ra was supposed to be the god of the sun, but God brought darkness on Egypt. The second question, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, is pointing to the holiness, the uniqueness of Yahweh to perform these powerful actions. Moses is calling back the events of creation and the global flood when he refers to the wonders of Yahweh. The description of God sending the east wind to divide the waters of the Red Sea, it calls back to the Spirit of God on the face of the deep and dividing the waters to bring forth dry land in Genesis 1. God also sent a wind to subside the waters of the flood in Genesis 8. In asking who is like Yahweh, Moses leads us to a conclusion that he is the only God capable of bringing forth life and creation and removing the wicked from the earth, using the earth itself to swallow them up. The same strength of Yahweh, though, that brought wrath upon the army of Pharaoh brought mercy to Israel. This word for mercy is the same word loving kindness that is used frequently in the book of Ruth. 
Yahweh is seen as the kinsman redeemer of Israel. In freeing them from slavery and defeating the Egyptians, he has purchased Israel for himself and now will now lead them to the land of Canaan that he promised to Abraham, the place where Yahweh intends to reside with his people. And that is a theme that will repeat at the end of the next stanza. So it's verse uh, 14 at the end. You've guided them to your, uh, in your strength to your holy habitation. And verse 17 ends with the dwelling place, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, your hands have established. There's those recurring themes to pair the two stanzas together. And that's where we move next in verses 14 through 17, looking to the future conquest of Canaan. Moses turned his attention in this song toward the future with an air of confidence, having just witnessed this huge victory of Yahweh over Egypt. The reputation of Yahweh will spread because he has defeated the most powerful army in the world at that time, and others will tremble at his might. This ragtag nation of misfits would pose no threat otherwise, but their God is powerful to deliver them into the land of Canaan. The nations listed listed were well-established and they were strong in human terms. They were threatening foes to confront. In fact, God led Israel by the way of the Red Sea on purpose to avoid the Philistines. Uh, Exodus chapter 13 says, Then it came to pass when uh, Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For For God said, Lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Of the nations listed in this song, Philistia, Edom, and Moab, Philistia stands out to me as the nation that would have been the most feared, considering this is where we find later that there are giant, powerful people like Goliath and his brothers. But in the face of Yahweh, Moses was confident that fear and dread would fall upon all of them. We know the sad truth of Israel's failures in the wilderness and the incomplete conquest of the promised land by Joshua, but that does not change the fact that it was within God's power to bring this particular generation of Israel into the land of Canaan, passing them over the Jordan River to plant them there in their future, future capital city of Jerusalem. Moses, being a prophet, he could have known that God would prepare this capital city and commission the building of the temple there to dwell among his people. Moses certainly looked forward to being settled in the promised land. And I can imagine at the age of 80, when he began to lead Israel out of Egypt, he was looking forward to resting. He wanted to see God's victory over the nations of the world and the perpetual reign of Yahweh as their king. And that is where Yahweh, why, or that's why Moses ends this song that way. And that is 
That is what we have to look forward to as people. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. At some point in our future, there will be no more corruptible human governments controlled by greedy, useless leaders. No more war and squabble over which nation controls which land. We know that there is a future ahead in which Yahweh will rule with complete justice, bountiful mercy, and total sovereignty. So beyond the promise of a new year or any period of newness that will certainly fade away in this life, we do have a future to look forward to with Jesus as ruler over all things. This song is a record of God keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make their offspring into a nation and also to Moses leading the newly formed nation out of their enslavement to Egypt. And having records such as this gives us proof that we can trust the promises of God that are still future to us. The, the consistent, perfect fulfillment of God's promises to his people give us reasonable cause to be confident in the message of the gospel and confidence in sharing that message. Yahweh also still stands consistently as the defender and champion of his people. We do not need to live in fear of those who oppose God.